Amen. Thank you, Jake and Emily. Wonderful singing this morning. The book of James, chapter number four. Book of James, chapter number four. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, we will be in our series through the book of James today. And then the next couple of Sundays, we will be looking at some Christmas themes as we will have some special Christmas music both uh, next Sunday and then the following Sunday. We'll have a a Christmas uh, order of service with it being uh, Christmas Eve Sunday. Hard to believe. Maybe you've had your calendar marked. I know that there is a certain individual in our house who's had the calendar marked since I think last Christmas. For some of you, Christmas never ends. For some of you, Christmas begins November 1st. I don't know uh, exactly how it works around your house, but uh, I've said it before, I have had a hard time playing Christmas music before Thanksgiving, Um, but now that has changed. Um, But anyway, uh, we will be in a, a Christmas theme Christmas passage, Christmas theme passage, the next couple of Sundays. But today, James chapter number 4. James chapter number 4. As we were reading just a few moments ago in verse 1, from whence come wars and fightings among you? The question is asked. This question has been asked through the ages. Conflict, war, violence, they make headlines every day. We don't wake up in the morning, we don't get our phones turned on and turn on the news without hearing of some sort of conflict, war, violence. We know of at least two major wars going on right now. We're praying much for Israel. We stand with Israel. We support Israel as God's people. We are praying for their victory over the terrorist organizations. We know that there is a demonic spirit that is in play here. I'm just going to come right out and say it. Because there is something particularly evil about this uh, anger and hatred toward the Jews, toward Israel. And some of the things that we have seen and some of the atrocities that have been committed. But conflict, war, violence makes the headlines every day. Uh, War has been fascinating to me as a little bit of a history buff. I used to go to the, the library, Eagle Library, near 34th in Georgetown, just down the street from the elementary school where I attended, and I used to go over there to Eagle Library, and I had a library card, and I think I was allowed to check out seven books. Why seven? I don't know. It was something like that. And I would check out seven history books. And I had them for two weeks, and I think I could renew them for a week. So if I could, I'd keep them for the third week. And I would read all about World War II. My favorite war was the Civil War, and I have my opinions, and I'm very strongly opinionated about the Civil War as some people would call it, the war between the states, or as I found out when I went to school down south, the war, the war of northern aggression. But anyway, I will not go any further with that. will not go any further with that. I know some people have very strong opinions about that war, and I do too. But war has fascinated me, the strategy, the generals, all the different ways in which wars are fought. There are, there are horrible things. War is horrible as I have matured, as I've grown in my understanding and read some of the experiences and even recently, and I can't even watch much um, of the details. I, I hear just enough, and it just breaks my heart. It's, it's, it's incredibly traumatic. Where did all this come from? Why? Why do people hate each other so much to go to such levels as to commit such heinous acts? We, we read about the violent crimes and the mass shootings and the serial killings. And where did all this come from? Why? 
James 4 and verse 1, from whence, from where come these wars and these fightings among you? James is using some strong language. He is dealing with the cause of conflict. The cause of conflict. We're going to talk about it in some general sense as well as in some specific. We're going to talk about it in some cases, a public or a secular, but also why is there conflict in the church? We're going to have to make some applications because James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, many of whom are believers who have been persecuted and have had to leave their homeland because of persecution. Some of it is just racial discrimination against the Jews, and it's an ethnic hatred, but some of it is because they are believers. So he's going to be dealing with believers, and he's going to be dealing with unsaved. There's going to be an evangelistic lesson and an evangelistic outreach and message in James's discourse here in verses 1 through 10 in this chapter, in this paragraph, but there's also going to be some direct application for us as believers. What, what is man's attempts to solve the problems of conflict, of war, and of violence? What, what does man blame? Man blames poverty. Man blames lack of education. We hear a lot about guns, easy access to guns, right? Mental illness. Now in this critical theory mood that we are in, now violence, conflict, and war is blamed on colonialism, racism, and on and on the list goes, right? Man has been looking for solutions. Living in Indianapolis for many years, there were, seemed like every year, a new anti-violence group or crusade. Ten-point coalition, I forget all the different names of all the different groups that would come, and they continue to, year after year, have new strategies for fighting violence. It wasn't that long ago up in Chicago, I think it was the mayor, uh, Rahm Emanuel, who was quite liberal, definitely not a conservative, and he got absolutely tarred and feathered because he dared to say that the cause of much of the crime in Chicago is because of the breakdown of the home and the absence of fathers. And he got ripped on. I mean, it was bad. The media went after him. How can you dare say? And that's a liberal mayor. I don't know where he's at now, but he spoke a grain of truth, and he was attacked for it. The world is trying to solve this problem of conflict, of war, of violence. And while all these things that I just mentioned might be factors, some to a greater degree or another, some are non-factors, they're just made up as attempts to try to shift the blame or take away personal responsibility or put all the blame on the bad guys that have been labeled by a certain group of people against another group. But there is a common thread or a common theme that runs right through the middle of each of our hearts. And it's called sin. The Bible condemns us all. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I hate to even think of it, but if not by the grace of God, any one of us are capable of committing any despicable, heinous act. It's hard to believe the lengths to which some of this violence has gone and the degree of hatred and evil to which it has gone. But there is sin 
within each of us. Sin is the transgression of the law. We're sinners by birth, having a sin nature, having sinned in our father Adam. And we can't just say, well, if I were there, if I were in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have been as dumb as Adam and Eve. Yeah, we would have been. We would have done the same thing. And we've shown by our choices that we would be right there doing the same thing and cheering him on all the way. We're sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. It's not a pretty picture. Our hearts are deceitful. They're desperately wicked. And James is going to continue. I know that James is not building a megachurch. I know he's not because he couldn't preach these sermons at most megachurches today because he'd be run out of town. But James does not hold back. He deals with us by the inspiration of God, the authority of God's word preserved for us today. We have God's truth that speaks to our sin and deals with us and helps us and points us to the way that we should go. As we were studying in our men's breakfast Bible study last week, and one of the men used the outline, I've heard it before, about all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Bible tells us what is wrong. The Bible tells us how to get right. He tells us what's wrong, how to correct it, and then after it's corrected, how to stay right. So there's a problem. It needs to be fixed. Here's how to fix it, and then here's how to stay fixed. The Bible deals with our sin, tells us what's wrong, points us to the way by the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, how to fix our problem of sin, and then how to stay right with God. Tells us what's wrong, tells us how to get right, how to stay right. We're thankful for the truth of God's word, and that's what James is doing. He's pointing out what's wrong, but he's not going to leave us there. He's going to point us to what we can do to get right and how to stay right with the Lord. So we come, as we come to verse 1 again in James 4, we see this cause of conflict. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? This word war here is literally the word used for warfare in general. The first century experienced war and conflict. They were currently under the rule of the Roman Empire, which had regular wars against foreign nations, those whom they wanted to expand their borders and their control and their authority over. The Romans had defeated the Greek Empire, who had defeated the Medo-Persian Empire, who had defeated the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonians before them was the Assyrians. And we can go throughout history and we can see the constant power struggle in the various empires. And James says there's wars that are in our members. There is a warfare, a general conflict. Yes, there is war among people in general that affects congregations like churches, that affects workplaces, that affects groups of people. 
There's even civil wars, I believe, uh, even uh, in, in Africa today. I think it might be in, in Sudan. There's a war that's not even mentioned uh, hardly at all that doesn't hardly make the news. We experienced a civil war here in America. There's all different types of wars and degrees of war and conflicts. We know that there's conflicts, war even among small groups of adults or teenagers, different cliques. And we know how that goes sometimes even with gangs that sometimes try to control certain areas. And there's often drugs and guns and violence. The nation of Haiti to this day does not have a functioning government that it's basically, from what I'm hearing, is controlled and ruled by various gangs and vigilante groups. It's not a peaceful place. He goes on and he, he says, Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Fights in verse 2. This has to do literally with hand-to-hand combat. He's even getting down to specific conflicts where there is hand-to-hand, bayonet-type, knife-type of hand-to-hand combat. I understand in the military, yes, you go to your shooting ranges, you learn how to fire a weapon, but you also have to learn how to fight with your hands. You have to learn how to combat the enemy with a knife or a bayonet. This is a word he uses speaking of this hand-to-hand, this personal, can I just say, intimate conflict. Is it not also sometimes in the home? Are we not sometimes seeing conflict too much so in our homes today? The people that love us the most sometimes can hurt us the most. I'm greatly burdened for the family. I'm thankful I grew up in a Christian home, never want to take that for granted. But my parents grew up in broken homes. My dad knew what it was like to be in the home of a drunkard. With yelling and screaming and things being thrown, my dad wouldn't even talk about some of the things that he heard and saw as a, as a boy. And at age 15, he was supporting his mom and his two sisters. And I didn't know until after my dad passed away that my dad continued to support his mom and his two sisters out of their personal income that many years later. Because my grandpa was a drunk, I never met him, except I was told as a baby. I was able to be held by him before he died of cirrhosis of the liver, having basically drank himself to death. Sad. But my dad told my mom early on that he had lived his life, he had grown up without a father, and he was going to be there for his children. And I'm thankful for that. Conflict in the home. We have a devil today who is trying to disintegrate the family, devastate the family. We're hearing that in some groups of people that there are 75% one-parent homes where in the high percentages there is no dad present in the home with their child. I watched it for 19 years as an assistant principal and school principal. I watched from early on In the early days of being an assistant principal and dealing with discipline, I watched as the home began to disintegrate. As I would once see 75, 80% of two-parent homes by the time I finished as a school principal two and a half years ago, 
I would probably say at least 50 to 60% of the homes that we were dealing with for school interviews and enrolling children, at least 50 to 60% had a divorce or were in a single parent home type of situation. It was now the norm for there to be broken homes, blended homes, for there to be some effect of divorce. And I'm not here to keep on those who have had divorce. I am not here to bring up guilt and to condemn and to, and, and to deal with all that. That is not my point. We, we have to preach God's ideal. We have to continue to hold forth God's ideal. I'm wanting to help young couples who you never want to go through divorce. And every single person here who has experienced divorce would probably say you don't want to go through it. And again, I'm not here to be judgmental and condemning. But I remember listening to a mom as we were working on some exams for the states. And this mom said, you know, I was told when I went through the divorce that my kids would be okay. It was no big deal. They would be all right. And she said, and here I am 10 years later, and my daughters are still suffering. She said, they never have gotten over it. And my youngest has experienced it the worst. And she's just pouring out her heart to me. And I said, I'm so sorry, Teresa. I'm so sorry. And it just put in my heart once again a reminder of how important the home is and how we need to have godly homes. Interpersonal conflict, fights is a word that speaks to hand-to-hand combat. It gets down to the very nitty-gritty of our marriages, of our homes, of our lives. It touches on those areas that we have to shore up, that we have to deal with, that we have to battle. And the battle is for the Lord and with the Lord, for the truth, for our homes, for our children, for our families, for God's ideal, because... Can I just go ahead and say it? Godly fathers make for godly homes. Godly homes make for godly churches. And godly churches can impact the world for Jesus Christ in a way that nothing else can. None of us are perfect. I have four children and a wife who could point out, make a long list of all my faults and my failures. And when I point a finger or two your way, there's three or four coming back at me. But there is conflict, and the cause is the loss of our heart, the sin of our heart. There's general and there's specific, even down to our homes. And he continues, going back to verse 1, he talks about lust, that war in our members. This word lust in verse 1 literally is the word that we get hedonism from. Carnal desires. There is a hedonistic tendency within our hearts. Hedonism is unrestrained vice, licentiousness, unrestrained, carnal, selfish desires. And he says that's what resides in our hearts. That's the cause of the warring among our members. Members, yes, there's a general sense of society, culture, big groups, but there's also an application of the members being within our own hearts as a believer who we experience as a believer with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, though we have the sin nature, there is 
what Paul describes in Romans 7 and verse 23, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Similar to what James is saying, making an application for us as believers, as true believers, we experience that internal conflict as, yes, the sin nature is dead. Romans teaches that the sin nature is dead, but it still has influence. I talked about this. I, I forget if it was last Sunday or maybe it was at our Bible study Monday night on campus, but uh, we, we have the, the corpse of the old nature. And we put lipstick on the corpse. We spray air freshener. We put a nice coat and tie. We dress up the corpse. And we drag it around. So we open the door. We hang out. And we live with the flesh, the old nature, the dead sin nature. We live with that influence putrefying our life. With the words that we say, with the thoughts that we think, with our actions, our choices. And as believers, we experience that warring in our members, the internal conflict. Any true believer knows what this is like. A person who is unsaved, they don't have the Holy Spirit. They're slaves to their flesh. They don't understand the spiritual conflict, the warring of the members that Romans 7 is describing. But we as true believers, we understand that. And we realize the hedonistic tendencies of our hearts. He continues. We go down in verse 2 again, and he uses that word fight, and then he uses the word war again. Now we have a different word for war. Now we have the service in a military campaign. Now it's literally like a soldier in the actual military campaign fighting in combat on the front lines. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. There is an aspect to this conflict that if we are not careful, we will yield our members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. And we will be defeated in the military campaign and not experience victory. We'll live under addictions. We'll live under bad habits. We'll live is in, in conflict with our flesh and our flesh, that corpse, that dead body, having way too much influence and stinking up our lives. And we are to not be yielding our members as instruments of unrighteousness, but be yielding our members as instruments of righteousness unto God, Romans says. He continues in verse number two with the word lust. Ye lust and have not. Notice the contrast. Ye lust and have not. Down at the end of verse two, ye fight and war, yet ye have not. Why? Because ye ask not. What did he say in James 1 and verse 5? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What's he drawing a contrast with? As we are allowing that dead body of our flesh to have permeating influence in our life, as we are yielding to that 
unrighteous member, as we are allowing the hedonistic tendency of our heart to come out, then we get what? We don't get the blessing of God. We don't get the honor of God. We don't get the joy of the Lord and the satisfaction and the joy of a right relationship with God. Instead, we get the lust and the carnality and all the consequences of the hedonistic pouring out of our hearts. He uses in verse 2 this word lust. He's referred to it in verse 1. And in verse 1, it was a different word referring to hedonism, carnal desires. In verse number 2, this word lust has to do with a earnest desire, a zealous. It's the word from which we translate our word zealous. It means to set one's heart upon to long for. It means a controlling, constraining, passionate desire. Ye lust. But what's he say? Ye lust and ye have not. This is where we have to check our hearts. Where is my desire coming from? Why do I want this? Why do I think I need this? Why do I think I have to have this? Where is this desire coming from? A desire to have a spouse is a good thing. Normal. But can there be a wrong desire for a spouse out of God's time, out of God's will, not according to God's plan? Sure. We can get into the area of the physical appetites. Can there be a normal, natural desire for food, but can it get out of sorts? Can there be a natural, normal desire to alleviate pain or to get some relief, but how do we satisfy that? Where do we go to get that help? Ye lust and have not. You don't have the joy of the Lord. You don't have the satisfaction of a right relationship with God in an application to the unsaved. Your lust leave you with emptiness. Your lusts keep you from turning to Jesus Christ in saving faith because you want your sin more than you want God. You want your sin. You want to have this whole world and yet lose your own soul. For the believer, we try to still have fruit in those things that we once were ashamed of. How sad. When Romans says, what fruit did you have? What fruit did ye have in those things that ye are now ashamed of? And the obvious answer is none. It left me empty. There's all kinds of cotton candy and elephant ears of the world today. And some of it's in the church. Where a pastor's afraid to preach on sin. Where he won't declare the authority of God's word. Where he won't preach the whole counsel of God where he won't declare the truth, and it's all about entertaining and tickling the ears and selling the gospel like some commodity. Shame on us as preachers. Shame on us as churches. When we don't hold forth the word of life, we have to address the lust of our hearts. Psalm 37 describes that he who delights in the Lord Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Some people have taken that passage and have said, see, I can do anything that I want to do. God says that I can have the desires of my heart. What's the key? What's the verse before that say? Delight yourself in the Lord. 
Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Check our hearts. We're never told to follow our hearts. We're told to keep our hearts with all diligence, for out of them are the issues of life. Solomon cries out to his son, my son, give me thine heart. I don't know how many times that verse has come up as I've been raising three boys and found myself saying, sons, give me thine heart. Not because daddy has it all together, but because I want to point your heart to the Lord. Because I want you to set your affections on things above. I want you to seek first the kingdom of God. And there's so many lustful pleasures and desires that are pulling at the hearts of our children in our own hearts as parents, as adults. It's hard today when there's a thousand voices coming from a thousand different points on the internet that are in the pockets of our pants and our skirts and our purses and wherever we keep our phones. And they become sources of all kinds of desires. As a matter of fact, if we don't desire something, we just scroll. And now there's a term for that, doom scrolling. So now we've been reduced to, as I've said before, and I heard this recently, we've been reduced to the attention span that's less than a goldfish. A goldfish clocks in at nine seconds. We are at 8.25, last I heard. We're distracted. We're covetous. We're greedy. We have the greatest degree of wealth that some people say that is in history. Maybe since the days of Solomon. And yet we have 100,000 deaths from opioid overdoses. Suicide rates that now are increasing exponentially at the age of 50 plus. Where now we have a culture of death in Canada where I think it was over 400 people were murdered by euthanasia last year. And many of them. They had no reasonable reason for dying, but they just simply were tired of life. Where I heard just recently of somebody hoping to get a ticket to Oregon because they wanted to end their life. Because in Oregon, there is a right to life, or sorry, right to death, whatever you call it. What's wrong? Where have our desires taken us? Ye lust, and you have not. Ye kill. He doesn't, he doesn't, in this cause of conflict, James, he, he, he doesn't take it easy on us. He's writing by the inspiration of God and he says, you know why people murder? You know why they commit self-murder, suicide? You know why they kill others? Murder? He literally uses the word for murder in verse 2 when he says, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have. He repeats in that word desire, he repeats that word found in verse 1, lust. It's translated desires here, and it's that word for hedonistic, selfish desires. But he says, ye kill, ye murder. What's he implying? Yes, there are murders, literally. There is homicide activity where there's literal intent to murder someone, to kill them. Yes, but he's also implying that there are sins leading up to that. Remember, he's been dealing with relationships in chapter 3 as we looked at. And he, he talked about strife and we 
talked about the envying and confusion and every evil work. We just dealt with that last week in James 3 and verse 16. So when he uses the word kill, he's not only talking about murder, which seems to be the, the extreme or the most heinous, the highest degree of this act of desire, of selfish desire, of hedonistic carnal desire, to go so far as to take someone else's life, that's one of the, if not the most extreme act of selfish, hedonistic desire. But he's no doubt dealing with the sins that lead up to that. Bitterness, hatred, anger. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, did Jesus not say that anger is the sin of the heart? That leads to murder. You, we hold up our hands and say, well, I'm not guilty of murder. I would never kill anybody. And Jesus brings it home and says, but there's hatred in our hearts. There's bitterness. We despise somebody. We loathe so badly that person that we wish they were dead. Some people even will act out upon that. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Verse 3, ye ask and receive not. Now he's dealing with the fact that there is an insincere, selfish motive. He says, ye ask amiss. You, act with, you, you ask with evil intent, with wrong desires. It's not delighting in the Lord. It's not, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It's, nevertheless, not your will, but mine be done. Ye ask amiss. He says it's out of these hedonistic, lustful, carnal desires. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. And again, that word lust, he brings back the word hedonistic, which is the word translated lust in verse 1. We've had those insincere requests, right? Maybe a student in the classroom, maybe a child. And then there's, as, as we sometimes will do, we'll say no. And we'll have to figure out 150 ways to say no. And sometimes I will, well, when the kids were little, now they would laugh at me if I did this. But when they were little, I would sing the word no. No, 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 no. And we would have all these different ways of saying no, right? Because what? They, they ask in lots of different ways. We say, don't ask again. And what's the way they do it? They come up with some way of rewording the question. We're, we're, we're selfish. We're carnal. God says no. God says this is not for you. This is not according to my righteous holy standard. This is not what's good for you. This is not in keeping with my righteousness. And we want to do our own thing. We want to try to skirt the law. We want to try to get away with it. We want to try to go around God. We want to try to get ahead of God. We just come right out and disobey God and rebel against him. And we go and we do what we want to do. Out of the hedonistic desires of our hearts. And what are we told in James 3? You receive not. Because you ask amiss. Why? that we might consume it upon our own hedonistic, selfish desires. And God doesn't want us to do that. God doesn't want us to have something outside of his will. God doesn't want us to have sin. But 
when Satan deceived Eve and Adam in the garden, what did Satan present? Oh, God, he, he's hiding something. He's keeping something from you. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. God doesn't know what's best for you. You know what's best for you. You do you. Right? You have your own truth. And you determine what is right. And your truth and my truth, well, we all can just do our own thing. And so now we live in an I, me first culture. Where I can have what I want, when I want, the way I want it, however I want it. And don't you dare get in the way. And if you so much as disagree with me, you're acting, you're committing genocide against me because you disagree with me. You have to be canceled, so on and so forth. That's where this carnal, hedonistic, selfish lust takes us. Verse 3 again, ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss that ye may consume it upon your lusts. This cause of conflict continues with another cause. He deals with this in verse 4 ye adulterers and adulteresses. He's talked about these carnal, hedonistic lusts. He's talked about this insincerity, this wrong desire, this asking amiss. And then he comes right out and he calls us, he calls those who are seeking their own desires, contrary to God's desire and God's will. And he says, ye adulterers and adulteresses. Again, James is not going to grow a feel-good church this way. I don't think James has any desire to grow a feel-good church. I think James has a desire to see people reached with the gospel, and they have to see their sin before they're ever going to see the Savior. They have to see their sin and see that Jesus Christ is the Savior for their sin. He's dealing with the sin. And he deals with it in terms now of spiritual apostasy, spiritual adultery. Ye adulterers and adulteresses. He says, you are committing spiritual adultery when you make friendship with the world, when you have an emotional attachment with the world. He says in verse number four, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. He's dealing with unsaved, yes, who are enemies of God, they're at enmity with God because they are attached to the world in an unsaved relationship, having not placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and having repented of their sins. But he's also dealing with believers who are flirting with the world, who are close to committing a spiritual act of adultery, the analogy, the illustration is obvious. When a marriage is broken because of adultery, it usually doesn't begin with somebody waking up one morning and saying, well, I'm just going to go cheat on my spouse today. Hmm, let's see, who can I cheat with? It's usually not how it begins, right? It begins with an affection that grows. 
He says friends, friendship, twice. The word is the idea of a deep emotional affection and attachment. So the flirting, it begins kind of subtle, and then it goes to texting back and forth with inappropriate types of messages. Then it becomes, to some, it becomes some sort of conversation, and then it becomes certain rendezvous at certain places, and it starts with a lunch date, and then it begins to be, well, let's meet here. How can I have my spouse be somewhere else so that they don't suspect let me turn off the location on my phone so that no one can know where I'm at. On and on it goes, right? So an unsaved person, they're slaves to their flesh. Even their good works, even us as unsaved people, before we got saved, our righteousness is filthy rags. The unsaved, they only have some standards of society, maybe of their upbringing, of their family, to maybe try to check their flesh and their desires. Now we have people today that if it's legal, it's okay. The government becomes my standard of right and wrong. Boy, that's trouble. Hollywood, Hollywood, you know, the, the, the movie ratings, the entertainment ratings. That, that's how I determine right and wrong. Really? We want Hollywood? We want the entertainment industry setting our standards for right and wrong? On and on, right? We're setting our moral values, our standards somewhere. Somebody is dictating our values. Somebody, somewhere, something is setting our priorities. Is it the Lord? Is it God's word? Is it our relationship with Jesus Christ and our desire to be holy as he is holy? See, friendship with the world, letting our affections be pulled away by the world, makes the world the authority in our life. And the world begins to set our priorities, begins to determine our values, and begins to dictate our motives. To the point that we can even be doctrinally sound and ecclesiastically separated, yet our love for God can grow cold, and our passion for Christ becomes tempered by worldliness, selfish motives, and covetous desires. We talked about this Monday night, last Monday night in our Bible study. That the church at Ephesus left their first love. They hated the Nicolaitans. They loved good doctrine. They were ecclesiastically separated. But they were cold toward God. They had left their first love. We have passion for lots of things. I'm a passionate person. I get myself in trouble. Because I can be very passionate. When I get involved in something and when I play sports, sometimes I'm not a very good athlete and I can't even play much anymore. But when I play, I play 100%. I want to win. I'm a very competitive person. Got myself in trouble for that. And still to this day, I can drive my wife and my kids insane. But we can have passion for so many things sacrifice and give so much of our time and energy and we are all in for so many things that the world offers but where's our passion for the lord where's our zeal for the lord are we committing a spiritual adultery are we allowing the world to pull our affections to 
set our priorities, to determine our values, and to dictate our motives? What are our affections? Where your treasure is, the Bible says, there will your heart be also. James deals with this cause of conflict. I know it'll be a few weeks before we come back and we finish this passage. But he says this cause of conflict is the loss of our hearts, the sin in our hearts. Are we toying around with that as believers? Are we toying around with decorating the dead body of our flesh, the carnal corpse? Are we allowing the affections of this world to pull us away from the Lord in our relationship with God is suffering? And we are on the road to a spiritual adultery? What if you're here today as an unbeliever? And you don't have any spiritual way. There's no Holy Spirit indwelling to give you victory. You are pulled by the carnality of your hearts. There might be some society standards, some family standards, some basic morality. There might be some embarrassment, some social shame. There might be something, some rules at work or some social embarrassment or status that might keep you in check. Maybe the government has somewhat, some way kept you in check, though we know the government is now going after every God-ordained institution and they're coming after the church as well. So the government, we know, is no place to put your trust. We know that people break the corporate rules and commit fraud and do all kinds of evil. You probably know people at work that even though there are rules, they try to break the rules. They try to skirt the rules. At school, handbooks, rules, try to break it. Ultimately, what has to check our hearts? As an unsaved person, the appeal is to come to Christ. This passage reveals our hearts. As believers, what fruit have we then in those things we are now ashamed of? Are we being pulled away close to committing spiritual adultery? Or is God on the throne of our hearts? Is he preeminent in our lives? Are we seeking first the kingdom of God? Where are our desires coming from? Are they coming from the Lord? From a right relationship with Jesus Christ? So that as we delight in him, the desires that we have are coming from the Lord? Delighting in his word? In our relationship with Jesus Christ? James has a lot to say. There's more from this passage that we'll come back to in a few weeks. But may the Lord do his work in our hearts as we close this morning. Lord, I pray that you will help us. We're thankful for the truth of the word of God that is like a sword, pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, this is a message that you gave to James centuries ago that is so relevant for us today because you intended not just for believers in the first century, for unsaved in the first century, but for us today in your church who may even have unsaved people sitting here and they're consumed by their flesh and desiring all that the world has to offer. And there are some believers today who are 
struggling with their affections. Lord, I pray that you will help us to claim these truths, to allow you to do your work in our hearts, to check our hearts, to help us to see where do our affections lie, what desires, where are they truly coming from, what are our motives, what are our priorities. Lord, I pray that you will help us to truly delight in you, to truly trust in you, and not lean on our own understanding, but to know you. And may, Lord, your desires fill our hearts, that we might go out and serve you and be obedient and faithful to your word and keep our relationship with you right. Lord, we're burdened for some who are not right with you even now, who we are praying for, that we are counseling, that we care for. Lord, I pray that you will do a work in their hearts. But, Lord, as we sit here, maybe praying for them, Lord, may we even check our hearts and examine ourselves and see if there's any place that we need to get right with you. Lord, I pray that you will bless in this time of song and invitation, that, Lord, you will continue to do your work in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray.